0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. The architectural theory of contextual architecture, often referred to as contextualism, asserts that built items should be in response to the literal and abstract components in the environment in which it is built. In 1988, architect Philip Johnson and Mark Wigley denounced this philosophy stating, contextualism has been used as an excuse for mediocrity for a dumb servility to the familiar whereas Rem Coolhouse was more to the point and simply said context sound exciting welcome to episode 127 context and design welcome to the life of an architect podcast i'm bob borson
1: and i'm andrew hawkins
0: and today we're talking about context in design and architecture, good, bad, and indifferent. We also have a guest on the show with us today, making his third appearance, mostly due to his seating proximity to me, fellow principal, and senior designer at Boca Pal, Lane Acre. Welcome back, Lane. I appreciate it. You ready for another serving of this?
2: Ready for the hat trick. This is my, my
0: third time. you're right. I know. And we brought you on for an easy, easy one today. Ready. Yeah. So part of the reason I asked Lane to join us today is he and I were out having a chat for about an hour and this topic came up and we spent a big chunk of our time talking about it. And I went, look, if you've got so much to say and I have so much to say about what you're saying, we should go on the podcast and say it with Andrew. So that's how this came to be.
1: So that means I'm going to get no words in Edgewise, We're just, <laughs> it turns out to be. Okay. I get, I'm setting myself up here. I got it.
0: No, no, no. We got it. Yes. Yeah, what do you think, Andrew? Yeah. Well, he does the editing. So he can just, I can say, here's what I think. And then Andrew could clip it off and go, no, that doesn't matter. Here's the point. And he could say whatever he wanted to say. He's got that power. I agree. That's an audio clip. <laughs> you can put in whenever you need it. You just cut it wherever you need it? That's, that's right. right. Yeah, that's a good point, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's kick this off with, I went as I'd like to do. I have a run sheet. I went and did some research because I thought, well, how do I kick this conversation off? Because it seems like it's a conversation you just kind of roll into a lot of times. Like nobody just goes start and you go, all right, context, let's go. So I thought we could start with like an intro to contextualism. Which turns out it's not that easy to do. At least it wasn't for me. So I found a bunch of articles online, and it looked like they all plagiarized from one another, to be honest with you. And that shows up again. Like we're going to talk about form based zoning. I saw like the same two sentences on like 30 different municipal websites. So obviously there's some language making the rounds. There was one good article. I thought it was a good article published online by. And there's no chance I'm going to say this name. It's a Dutch name. Right? So, look, I get a free pass, right? Dutch is not the easiest language to get. So, this was an article written by Eason Gomez Daglioglu. It sounds like I didn't do it right. Yeah, I'm pretty
2: sure that's not right. (laughs) I nailed it.
0: (laughs) Well, so, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Architecture at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. And I'll put a link to this article. It's not a very long article. It gives a concise, albeit highly academic, breakdown of what contextualism is and how it fits within a bigger picture. So it was like, all right, let me read this to make sure that, like, am I on in sync with stuff? And I actually learned a bunch of stuff I'd never really thought about before, which I thought was interesting. So everything I'm about to say really is lifted from this six-page paper that she wrote. And so this starts off by saying in the 1980s, contextualism was mainly associated with conformity and visual compatibility with the surrounding built environments, which is how I've always thought of context and contextualism, right. right? A thing looks like it is of its place. So she goes on to say that possibly a reactionary position to modernism's disregard for context or its break from the past and the doctrine of the spirit of times. Which is something I hadn't really thought about, that if you're doing modernist work, like their whole goal is to say, like, there is no context. We're doing a me. Yeah. Like, I'm going to do what, like, and I went, you know, I re- never really connected those dots together before until I read this article, and I thought that was really useful.
1: Did they not point out that the modernism was about a universal idea of, of context also? Yeah. That's what I came across in a lot of the stuff I was reading. Yeah. That this idea of universality or universalness, right, is what modernism was
0: about. But to that to that end, it removes the specificity of place mm-hmm. and materials from it. Sure. And I always thought about the mechanization of the process. How can I mass produce parts? Part of modernism is this readily available mass production. There's a lot of that stuff. And it removes out that one thing in one place at one time for one place. I think I said place twice. That's how important it is. Kind of consideration. Yeah. So in 1988, a bunch of Avant-garde architects came together at the Museum of Modern Art's deconstructivist architecture exhibition to attack postmodernism and its contextualism. And the curators were Philip Johnson and that guy Mark Wigley, who kind of gave them a shout out at the very beginning. And they're the ones that said, hey, it's, a, it's contextualism has been used as an excuse for mediocrity, you know, a dumb servility to the familiar. What I thought was really interesting about that is that exhibition included the work of Koop Himmelblau, Peter Eisenman, Frank Gehry, Zaha Hadid, Rem Koolhaas, Daniel Libskin, Bernard Schumi. These are all, those were like the first architects. When that word came around, people that were known globally for their iconic building designs and, as she puts, detached spectacular objects. Yeah. And it celebrated architecture's (laughs) deterritorialism. That's a word I've never said, nor have I ever typed it out before. But the idea that these buildings are not of a place—they're objects. Yeah. Right. They're icons. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I thought it was funny that that group of people was put together. And can you think of a stronger group to who would reject contextualism than those people?
1: Yeah. That's the prime starting lineup right there.
0: I know, that would be like, hey, everybody, welcome to, and they're all just sitting over there. That'd be, it's a pretty powerful group. And think about it, that was 1988. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, that was a long time ago. Anyway, so I thought that that was as kind of an introduction of, there's this whole group of people that are reacting to the idea that contextualism and a thing being of a time and a place shouldn't matter. And their argument is that it's lazy. Like, you're just trying to mimic what is already there. Like, they, they didn't see it as something that was honest and truthful, and as a result, they're like, blah, get rid of it. I don't go that far.
2: Well, what's interesting about that is, is how many of those can you take? It's one thing to be like a, a city that's racing to get their Ingalls building done, or their IMP building done. Like, how many of those star architects can live in one place, in one city, before it becomes too disconnected? too many shiny objects. Are they all competing against each other? Is there no room for conformity in that kind of sense of place?
0: I, I don't know how to answer that question because I think kind of the whole point is n- no, there is no room yeah for that. Maybe because I'm not, I don't know <laughs> the intellectual that a lot of these people are, but the idea that I used to just break it down and say, I couldn't evaluate the work of Frank Gary. Cause I got What are the rules? There's no criteria to determine whether or not it's good or bad. It's a thing. Does it have all the rooms it's supposed to have? Like the user can say, yes, it did what I needed it to do, but you can't look at it as a response to anything other than, does it look good? Yeah. Right. I'm not asking you to agree with that as a, as your position, but
2: no, it's interesting. So, Frank Gary, for me, I mean, and you guys might have a story for you growing up in this profession or just architecture in general, but. I think Frank Gehry for me was the first one that really jumped out in this kind of conversation. The museum, I mean,
0: uh-huh. that
2: one, and this is me studying all through school and history and churches and all that stuff. But to see those forms like that, that was the first major impact for me to just be, look at me, look at this that we can do now. And you now you see that kind of form shape pop up in buildings. As I mentioned, it's like California now has the Disney theater in downtown. They have their own little version of it. Yeah. So.
0: Well, that became the thing, right? Like, there was this period of time where if you hired Frank Gehry, you might get a giant pair of binoculars in front of your building. That's <laughs> true. There was that kind of stuff that he did in the early days.
1: For the dress, the curved kind of dress building. It's all glass. Yeah. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and they also had the Fred and Ginger that they talk about. You know? Yeah. I now mean, it's built out of masonry and it's the folded, pl- you know, it's like Folded's not the right word. Warp planes, you know, undulating forms, that sort of thing. Yeah. But then it when it went to the kind of the titanium panels, everyone's like, Yes, now, now this we really like. I mean, he was already doing okay. I yeah. <laughs> let me let me just say he was already doing okay. But then people are like, Yeah, will you build one of those for us here? And it didn't matter what the building type was, what its use was, where does it fitting? Like there's one in Chicago, there's one in LA, there's one in Spa. I mean it didn't matter. And if he was sitting here with us, he'd probably shoot us all the bird and tell us that it doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think for me, part of it, though, in that whole thing was how successful Bilbao was, though, because it reinvigorated that whole area of the city. It transformed that part of Bilbao, in essence. It also was completely against everything that was there. It was not contextual at all. It was a big finger to be doing, look, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do but then somehow it became an icon of the place. Now everybody associates that with Bilbao. And so I think that's part of the reason behind it is the the success that that had. If it hadn't worked, I don't think it would have manifested the same way.
0: There wouldn't be eight more of them in other cities around the world. For sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. So look, let's segue to should a thing look like where it's from. This is a kind of a great segue because Bilbao, It doesn't look like anything there. And it was wildly successful and it was transformative to that city. So like, that's a really strong argument for why something doesn't need to look like where it's from. Yeah. But that's such an intrinsic building type. There's not a lot of context to it. I mean, I could stand back and pull up pictures on the internet. It's just that building. I mean, it's not like tucked in. There's no context that's immediately adjacent. It's not an addition to something. Yeah. There's none that holds itself out to go, look, see this right here? I'm not that. It's standalone. Mm -hmm. So let's change building scales a little bit. And so, Andrew, you and I had this conversation a couple of years ago, and it had to do with the stock plans that Texas was looking to try to implement for schools.
1: Yeah. And how terrible of an idea that was. (laughs) The idea there, though, was that it didn't matter what the building looked like or how it responded to what was around or the community was built in, but just the fact that It contained the right parts. It was more of a mass produced thing. And the idea there was now that we mention it, like, almost back to modernism where it was about efficiency so that they could have all these stock plans on on file and the school could just go and pick one and go, hey, you know, catalog shopping for my next new elementary school and go boom, there it is. But we as architects of course argued against that heavily and it didn't pass. Because things have got to be of a place and they need to respond to certain things that the community needs and the context that they're in. And so it was a fast food approach to architecture in reality. But even in my day, I've done some adaptations to a few fast food restaurants because they had to meet local guidelines and do local things. So there's still some idea of, of meeting the context, regardless of how you feel about it
0: almost. Yeah. It's kind of like you're saying, Kane's chicken fingers looks the same everywhere. <laughs> like it's not adapting to the, yeah to the latitude it's at in Dallas. As opposed to where it's at somewhere else, or this is a hot, humid environment and we're building in an arid environment. Like yeah. that, they don't care. That's not what that's about. Yeah. You would think schools, that would be a big part of it because depending on where you're at, maybe there's outdoor curriculum and you want to have a space for that and you want to be able to build in a way that allows those spaces to exist and maybe orient the building in a way that makes sense. And how do people get to the site? Where's mass transportation? You know, if they have that, if it's in a city that has it, opposed to everyone just driving their pickup truck to go to school.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's the part of the problem, too, with was this idea of, like, how do you design something to fit a contextless place, especially now, for certainly be about, like, orienting the thing correctly in the first place, just right off the bat, so that I've got cardinal directions that make sense, and I don't have giant glass walls in the gym that are facing west, so that when we start to have basketball games in the afternoon, everybody gets blinded that, or, you know, the the temperatures are so high, things like that that you can't account for if you don't start with the context of the place and where you're at. This is something we teach students almost day one in school about dealing with context.
2: The density of context around you is an interesting debate with this because, like you said, how far apart are your buildings before you just lose a sense of what that context even means before it becomes a standalone parcel? And, you know, there's such a buffer between you and your neighbor that what is a place at that point? And I don't have a clear answer for that. I mean, I would imagine a more urban site is a little bit more indicative to trying to fit into a place than a suburban 20-acre parcel for a school, maybe, if it's standalone. Yeah, true. I don't know how you put a bracket around or definition around that density before it starts becoming a question that you ask as an architect or, or if you're if you're responsible for curling up with a design.
0: Well, don't you think that part of that moment when you ask yourself that question as an architect is reflective of the work that you do. I don't mean like the style of design, but I first asked myself this question when I was doing residential work. We had a little brief chat before we actually hit the record button. And I was kind of yelling at about HOAs and the difference between like buying into an HOA and the kind of hell that you just brought onto yourself voluntarily. How my sympathy for you is slightly diminished because... (laughs) You know, you should know that some's coming for you, right? Now, of course, that stuff can change. But I ended up writing an article, and I thought this was really interesting. So when I thought about this as a topic for discussion, you know, a lot of times I go back and I go, well, have I talked about this before? Just so I can either purposely repeat myself or avoid accidentally repeating myself.
1: Or contradicting yourself.
0: <laughs> well, I'm okay with ev- if I've evolved. That's okay. I don't oh, okay. need to have the same message You know, it's been 13 years almost since I wrote this post originally, and it was titled Modern House Friendly Neighbor. And on my drive to work every day, I passed this lot that was being developed, and it was in an area where I live called Highland Park, and it's got a bunch of really old, nice houses in it, and it's not a cheap area town to live in. And somebody had taken a lot, and they had hired this architect. He's a good architect. He's won a lot of design awards. He is a modern architect too. His stuff is very I mean it's cool. I admire a lot of the projects that he's done and I watched this thing being built and I was just kind of dumbfounded a little bit that it was like a blank flat straight wall no windows couldn't see any doors I mean literally if you imagine a giant square that's what it was and to the right and left of it was like 1920s craftsman bungalows. And I thought, man, if I was one of those people to either side, I'm pretty sure I'd be unhappy and worried about my property values. If this project doesn't change or if it's just what it is, because it's not a friendly looking house. It's definitely an artistic statement to be sure. So there are a lot of comments on that post. It was an interesting one. And, And actually when I wrote it, the people I worked for at the time, they came in and they're like, hey, you might want to think about pulling that article down. You're going to get in trouble because you called that guy out. And I'm like, I didn't call him out. I didn't say that he wasn't good at what he did. And I want to have the conversation about, should we as architects feel like we have the freedom to do whatever we want on that type of lot? Because it wasn't in an HOA. As long as he met the zoning requirements, which are setbacks and, and height restriction and FARs, like, he can do whatever he wants. He can do that. And I listen, I don't want people to tell me what I can and can't do. I am solidly in that camp. But I went, is there any responsibility to not put a house like that in between these two bungalows? And I never really settled on an answer to be honest with you, because let's see how I can say this. I agree with his right and the owner's right to do what they did. I do not ever want to say that they can't do it. I just don't know that they should have done it. Like, I'm on board with being able to do it. I just don't know that I would have done it. Yeah. And they leaned into it. They leaned into it. I'll have pictures. I'll pull those out and I'll put them on the website so people can see the context to it. And it had a very interesting conversation. But before we get into that, I went back onto the tax rolls today. Because like I said, I wrote this article in 2010. And I was like, okay, it's been there for 13 years. How are we looking? Did the property values be impacted in some way? So that house in 2010, the lot, let me put it this way. The lot was appraised at $617,000, and it's a 12,300 square foot lot. So it's not a big lot, but just over $600,000. The lot right next door, also $617,000, which is pretty common. If they're going to say, "You look, you're in this place, your lots, they're all the same size, they're in the same area, they're in the same tax bracket. From a school zone standpoint, what your tax base has to pay into it. I looked at it today. The lot value of the house with the really modern house on it was appraised at $2.3 million. The lot to the left of it, $1.8 million. So why is the bungalow house lot appraised for $500,000 less than the modern lot? They're the same size. There's no difference between the two. They started off at the same point. Why is this one a half million dollars more? I don't understand this. (laughs) I'm completely confused as to why that is. Now, I know that the tax people play a bunch of games because they can't raise, at least in Dallas, for example, they can't raise your appraised value more than 10% in a single year. Unless you sell your house and the person who buys it, then they can readjust it because they're like, well, this is market value. It's not 10% more than what we were taxing him on. Market value is what you just paid for that house. So they get to reset it. These houses are still the original owners from 2010. The same people still own them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably the difference. I mean, for sure. Because it- No, no, no. How how is that the difference? There was no reset between either of them. They should have- Oh, the- You know what I mean? They should have escalated at the same rate.
2: One owner is probably more contentious than the other. Maybe he went to the tax appraiser and fought it
0: more often. Went and fought it more often? That's all I can come up with. Yeah. that that's the only reason. But that's lot only, right? Not lot plus. Yeah. The lot plus the house. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. the So it was
1: the one. No, that's what I figured. But I bet that's part of it too, though, is they can, they're going to raise the value of the lot because they can because they're going to raise the value of the house. Sort of cheat it that way, in other words.
0: Well, that's what I thought. But the lot? That's 2.3 million. The house is 2.5 million. Mm -hmm. That whole lot and house is five and a half million dollars. Yeah. On the other one, the lot's 1.3 million. The house is only Mm 500,000. So the whole thing's only 1.8. So you would think that if they're depressing the house value on the the one house, that they could raise like more of that 10% that they can raise it up would go towards lot. But somehow the lot over to the side has appraised at a faster rate. Mm than the other house. It completely flies in the face that I thought, like, hey, this guy in the bungalow should be concerned because maybe his lot, you know, no one's going to buy his house because of this house next door. And there's some evidence to suggest that it has not continued to rise at the same rate of the house that has the modern house next door to it.
2: Yeah. So is the responsibility of the architect just to inform their potential client that if we don't build the bungalow, your taxes are going to double?
0: Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. That's the good steward of uh, being an architect.
1: To me, this brings up the difference in
0: the idea of, I don't know that
1: there's an answer to it either, but the idea of doing something vernacular, which would be the bungalow that fits in, or something along the lines of this idea of critical regionalism, Kenneth Framda talks about, that's not necessarily about copying the vernacular, but as a response to what the vernacular is and what it did and the materials and the context in a different way. But I just went and looked at that article you wrote just so I could see the pictures of the difference. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty drastic. I'm not saying that what that guy was doing was critical regionalism at all. To me, it begs the question because I don't think we have a responsibility to say, all right, well, if there's a bungalow on the left and a bungalow on the right, I need to do a bungalow in the middle.
0: Yes, I agree with that. Because
1: I don't think that's it. Yep. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, I do think that you have to provide some sensitivity to those things. But I don't know how. I don't know what the level of that sensitivity is.
2: Well, I can maybe walk through how we kind of do it on the commercial side. I know we've been talking a little bit, a little bit about on the residential side. but And we already mentioned some of the star architects that you hire. I feel like if you're going to hire somebody like that, you kind of know what you're going to get. You kind of know what you're expecting. And I know mm-hmm. there's, there's names that you threw out there. And If somebody is hiring that architect, it's clear, a clear direction that that client wants to go. When we evaluate projects, we always try and, and strategize around exit strategy. So, you're doing things and pushing the envelope in a sense that you want to do something different to stand out, but not so much that you stick someone with something that they can't use in a different way or can't sell or can't you know, renovate it to do something different. I mean, our, our primary is office. So, well, most of the office buildings around town that we do are, are designed away for a reason because they're flexible and can be used by multi tenants and those things. So, the amount of movement that we do on the skin and in the form is all tied to what's the tolerable allowance for that client to deviate from the norm. Really small plates, and as they go up to the top of the building, allow for special tenants. And that's where we do all our, our, our primary moves, but it's not across the whole building. right? But you'll still have star architects hired to do office buildings, right? and people want an office there not because the plate is efficient, just because it was by XYZ.
1: Because it's wrapped in folded titanium. <laughs> Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. And we should say when Lane says plate, he's talking about a floor plate.
1: Floor
2: plate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Not a paper plate. No. Right.
0: So that's part of it. But that also suggests that there's some sort of ownership chain that's going to be, they're either going to move it immediately. So they need to conform to what market is expecting from them, you know, from a metric standpoint, not an aesthetic standpoint, but from a metric, like what's your floor plate size? How many elevators you have? There's all those things that come into it. If they're going to position themselves to hold it long-term, then they might start thinking about, well, how do I take this building and change it from a single tenant use to a multi-tenant use? Or how do I change it so that I can adapt it to have a different functionality beside just office in it? Yeah. A lot of building types, schools, retail, single family, they don't have that. They are what they are and they're not, nobody's going to reposition and that's not true. I just thought of lots of ways. I
1: just thought of a lot of them. Don't say that. We <laughs> reposition schools all the time to into different types of schools. It's still, I guess, to me the the things that you're talking about is programmatic. My view of it is this is contextualism isn't always isn't programmatic. It's more. I mean, I hate to say it more aesthetic, more form based, more material based. That I don't mean it in a bad way, but who cares what the program is? It's how the building itself responds to context. Yeah. regardless of what what's inside of it yeah we have discussions all the time in my building about whether or not you design i think this goes back to even talking about some of the architects we're talking about before and others that we may come up with a different idea but people that design a building first and then shove the program in it or people that design a building based on program and then wrap the building around the program and those two competing ideas yeah. And to me, one of them has an opportunity to respond. I mean, they both have an opportunity to respond to context, I guess, but probably do it in different ways. Yeah, But to me, again, context is not so much about program. I mean, maybe it is in the sense of I need to exit here and this needs to exit there because I'm I'm on the street. and I'm dealing with my site contextual issues, but it doesn't necessarily lean itself towards the contextualism is completely responsive to my program. I mean, to me, it's just about the physical aspects of the building almost more than anything else. Not 100%. I don't want to dig myself into a dumb hole like that. But but to me, that's what I think of when we talk about contextualism. And this thing you, Bob, talking about, well, does it look like it should? Does it look like it belongs where it is? It has less to do with what's happening inside of it in a way.
2: So it's the form follows function. It's that whole or function follows form.
1: Something like that. I don't know. I mean, it just, Yeah, yeah. to me, if I could see a building and say, yeah, it looks like it responds to the context really well, regardless of what's happening in it. Or I can say it looks like it doesn't. Regardless of what's happening in it, when I start to evaluate those things,
2: well, the context as a, just a term is kind of broad. But when you think of, if I just take the form example that you give, is using the common materials around the building, mm-hmm. whether it's actually from the earth that it that I'm digging up, or it's matching the surrounding building's brick color, but the forms are completely off the wall. Sure, but I'm using the same materiality. Where does that fit into me being contextual? Where are those lines drawn? So.
1: I mean, I think it's a level of it though, right? Sure, sure. One could argue that I'm doing brick, even though it's Fred and Ginger brick, it's still brick. Yeah.
2: But the site contextual, even when you're planning, think of the considerations that you have if you have a busy street or you have loading, like all those things that you need to Mm -hmm. juggle and where they go that you want to respond from the context that's around you. You don't put your loading dock in the front door, in other words. I mean, that's the low-hanging fruit of responding to a contextual. Yeah. I guess it's still all wrapped in that envelope to some extent.
0: Okay. But also put this on there. It's not necessarily of the earth or the materials you're using reflect what's in that location. It could be of the time. Oh, sure. You sure. You design a building that looks like it exists in this moment in time, as opposed to, I'm designing in the French Quarter, and I'm surrounded by buildings that are way older than this new one I'm doing, but I'm going to artificially make mine look like it's old as well.
2: Do you guys, in the buildings that you participated in, the design sat, or when you had the ability to make those decisions, Do you try to do timeless architecture? Like, is that ever a goal
0: for y'all? I mean, it is for some of the residential projects that I've worked on, but I deal with that more from a material standpoint than I do with a form making concept because the house really needs to reflect how they live, how they want to live, how they use the space, how they engage with the people that come into their house, how they want to raise their kids. This isn't 1950s when mom is a homemaker and she's sequestered in a kitchen that's closed off from the rest of the house while dad's reading a paper in the front room and the kids are sitting on the floor listening to the radio. That doesn't happen anymore. We design houses now to where everybody can be engaged with one another in the same space. That changed, right? That is a programming change that has happened. Yes, I would say we're not going back to that, but there are some instances that it looks like there's a trend to going back to enclosed kitchens as opposed to open plan kitchens. But. More so than anything else, we try to look at materials that I don't have to come back and change later. Like if somebody came and said, I really like this orange oven because orange is super popular right now. We're like, well, yeah, but it's the harvest gold of 2023, you know, or the avocado green. Do we still want to do that? We're like, no, let's make the background more neutral. And then if you want to make a change or have your space feel different, go buy a new couch. Put a new coat of paint on or something like that if you want to make a change. I don't need to swap out this iron spot brick because it's no longer of its time or place. We try to avoid that. Those other things are relatively inexpensive compared to built permanent things. Okay. Now, one of the things we could get into a little bit, you know, we mentioned there are a bunch of architects that have very particular looks and they get hired to do those projects. I've said this a number of times. You know, I have friends that work at Lake Flato. They win every design award it seems like they ever go after. Wayne, you and I are working on a project with them right now. I mean, they do great work, right? But if I put 100 projects up on the wall and one of them is a Lake Flato project, I will tell you which one it is. You can tell. They have a style. They have a way that now it evolved out of contextualism. They designed it of a time and of a place and using the materials that were readily available. Yeah, out of regionalism. Yeah. For sure. And everybody loved it and thought it's great. And now they just want them to do that, but anywhere else. Yeah. It's like Richard Meyer with his white porcelain buildings. How many of those? You're like, well, I know who did that project. And he got hired because that's what people wanted from him. Sure, Frank Gary's getting that. It could be Peter Eisenman. Yeah, Eisenman. Daniel Leapskin. Yeah. You know what you're getting if you hire these folks, right? Right. And so, I don't know if that works for everybody, because there are a lot of really good architects that you're going to get something different every time. Allied Works, it's a great example. Brett Clophill, that guy has a style, but it's certainly not palette-driven necessarily. I can look at what he did for the Clifford Still Museum, and I can look at what he did for the uh, Arts Magnet here in Dallas. Wildly different buildings, and both amazing. Right. Let's move on to. Form based zoning, because we've kind of already mentioned this a few times. And now it's got a nice convenient label to it. And for those that don't know, so form based zoning exists in a lot of places. And it seems like more and more places are coming online with the idea of form based zoning. So zoning typically addresses land use and how space is allocated from a size and density perspective. Form based zoning, and this is according to the Form Base Codes Institute who I'm just going to say is the foremost authority on form-based zoning because the definition on their website is the one I found on municipal websites everywhere. So form-based zoning, according to them, is defined as a land development regulation that fosters predictable built results in a high quality public realm by using physical form rather than separation of uses as the organizing principle for the code. Here you go. Uh, That's the definition. Don't love that. I don't like that they're trying to regulate the physical form. It's going to be this big and this tall. And if it's this long, you need to have five foot offsets every 50 foot on. Like they're designing the building parameters for you that you end up having to work around. So just inherently in my bones, I don't like it. I'm already at odds with it. But if I take a step back, have a breath. I don't know that I'm super against what they're hoping to achieve because there's a lot of garbage out there. And if somebody just said, you know what, you can't put a metal box right here. Like that's not okay. You can't put the lowest cost thing here and that's okay. Cause you know what? I don't want that either. I had a client, one of my boss told me that the CEO of this company, we did a lot of retail work. He said, if he could sell his product out of the back of a white semi truck in a parking lot, that's what he'd do. But nobody wants to pay the amount of money that they charge for their clothing and get it out of the back of a semi truck. So their goal was to spend the least amount of money so that you felt okay spending your money to buy their product. Right? So there's a perception of value associated with it and the space needed to reflect that perceived value. And form-based zoning has a lot to do with that. They're trying to say like, hey, we're a nice community as evidenced by all the masonry and the accent masonry that we require on our buildings, which we know is ridiculous.
2: Yeah, i had this come up now in two different projects where it's in the beginning stages and trying not to make this too contextual around our area because I know every area deals with zoning in a different way. But in the two instances that it came up, both the municipalities are using it as bargaining tools for developers to get certain densities or height alleviations like so They're using it at least in these two projects to negotiate the architecture that they're trying to create for the place so they weren't coming up with the language necessarily they're just trying to get the developers to put into their pd their plan development language that accomplishes those goals and then if they do that and they approve it it's allowing them to be more dense or adjust the parking or a bunch of xyz different things within a development so most of this, and Bob alluded to this kind of earlier when he kicked off everything, the, the uh, state of Texas has just put restrictions on what cities can and can't do in terms of restrictions on architecture. So this form-based zoning is a more interesting in a clever way that it's getting woven back in to a certain extent.
0: Well, look, let me put this out there. So according to the FBCI, there are five elements of form-based codes, and they break it down into a regulating plan which is a planner map of the regulated area designating the locations where different building form standards apply. So it's just a map. It's like in this area, you will do these things, right? So that's easy. Second was public standards. And that specifies elements in the public realm, sidewalks, travel lanes, on-street parking, street trees, furniture, that kind of thing. The third major category, main elements, was building standards, which all of us, like that's when we should go, all right. Now this is the part I want to pay attention to. Regulations controlling the features, configurations, and functions of buildings that define and shape the public realm. So that's features and configurations. You're like, okay. That loosely describes setbacks, height, visibility. You go, all right, well, that's not that bad either. Then there's an administration clearly defined and streamlined application for project review process. And there's definition, a glossary to ensure the precise use of technical terms. Now, they have under, quote unquote, additional optional elements. That's where you're going to find architectural standards, which are the regulations that control external materials and quality. Mm. And that manifests itself with, they'll say like, it has to be this much masonry and they'll define what masonry Mm -hmm. is. I worked in one city and they're like, stucco isn't masonry. And I go, it actually is. It's literally the same. It it is. We're not talking Ephus. Yeah real three coat stucco is made and they're like nope nope not accepting it and i go all right well i'd have less heartburn if you said masonry but not stucco as opposed to trying to argue with me that stucco isn't actually masonry that got on my nerves or they would say how much glass you had to have what percentage of what materials had to be on each elevation and a lot of these pds like Elaine was alluding to developers will come in and they'll, they'll barter and they'll trade. and like, well, I'll give you this if you'll give me that. Yep. We'll upgrade this requirement if you let me downgrade that requirement. And from a residential standpoint, a lot of these HOAs, these developer communities, what happens is you look at the front elevation. It's like all brick and everything looks fantastic. You turn a corner, it goes to siding like instantly. The back is made of cardboard. <laughs> yep. Yes. The chimneys are wrapped in hardy board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like hardy board, but it's like they're put lipstick on the front. And they're like, well, nobody's looking at the side yard when they decide to buy the house or not. Yeah.
1: So one of my favorite stories, and I don't know if I've told this before, but there was a city I used to do a lot of work for and they, they used to have really strong design guidelines. And so we were doing a project for them, public restroom in a downtown type area that was an overlay district. And it was mainly a retail and dining district. And so one of the main design guideline elements was that in the first vertical nine feet of the building facade, it had to be 90% glazing. And this was to promote retail engagement, have shop storefronts and that kind of thing. And so we had to go through the formal process of to get a variance for this project for the city on this public restroom building where you know, it didn't have to be 90% glazing on all four sides of the project. And that process took an extra four months for us to go through, submit elevations, have them reviewed, go to meetings, and do all these things, simply because they had this really stringent set of rules and there was no way around it. And of course, they were wanting to be quote unquote fair and play by their own rules so they couldn't skirt the process. So we spent all that extra time doing that process and all the while, you know, costs are escalating. When we found out this requirement at the beginning, I toyed around with the person I was doing the project with, of like, hey, we could just do translucent frosted glass around the whole thing and put some backlights in it so that you could always see shadows doing things in the restroom, but you couldn't really ever see what they were doing. You know, and if they were in the stall, they'd be okay, but it was going to be this artistic interpretation. They didn't go for that, needless to say. And it's just the idea that the process was so overly regulated, the design of the buildings were so controlled, that it didn't matter what the project type was. You still had to go through the process and do these things. There was no point in there where a common sense just said, oh, okay, well, yeah, nobody wants to have glass bathrooms, so let's just skip it and move on. Like, that wasn't a possibility. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's ridiculous, right? That's a very similar. I was going to say, was this Louisiana that you were doing this? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, Lane's got like a very similar story.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is very similar. It's overly done. It's like the, the intent was there. I get understand what they're trying to do, but there was...
1: But yes, I do understand the intent. I don't think it's easy. I mean, I think it's really hard, but I think the idea that they're looking for, and this is going to be me stepping up on a soapbox for a little bit about this, but the people that come in and do a lot of those buildings that they don't want are not architects, honestly. I mean, for the most part, that's not the kind of stuff that we as architects wanna do. It's typically other things like developers or buildings that don't require architects at all that end up making those kind of buildings. And those are the kind of buildings that the municipalities don't want. But instead of just saying, okay, let's mandate that every building in this zoning area or this district or even lowering the square footage threshold, every one of these buildings has to have an architect But they don't want to do that. Instead, they just want to over-regulate and make all these ordinances and do all these other kind of things instead of just saying, yeah, let's just make sure every building is an architect. And that could really help in the problem. Because for the most part, we have good judgment. I mean, I can't say that we all do, but for the most part, we do. And that would really help in the problem instead of this over-regulation. It's interesting now, just recently in the last one or two legislative sessions here in Texas, The legislature passed laws that said municipalities couldn't regulate materials in a way saying you got to have 80% this, 40% that, 20% this, 10% that, on this side, that side, the front, the back, the rear, visibility areas, all those kinds of things. They outlawed all that, but only at a municipality level. HOAs still don't count for that. Now they're switching to this form-based model, which some of them had that already, but now it's becoming the major focus. And we're saying, well, now if you got to have every 50 foot, you've got to have the building set back four feet and the roof step up five feet and all that kind of stuff. And I think the problematic parts of those come in when it's, oh, it's 52 feet. So now I've got these weird requirements for a building that's much bigger in their minds, but it has the same requirements and it starts to look at a scale and All these sort of weird things. And these things don't necessarily make for good architecture. They're just applied rules that somebody made up that seems to maybe make something right but it doesn't necessarily guarantee good architecture anyway. It just guarantees I meet these rules and stipulations, and it still may be garbage architecture. And so you get these weird things like when I drive around my town, I can't count the number of north-facing window awnings, (laughs) shading north-facing windows that there are around town because they needed to have an element on that facade of the building that projected out four feet, and so here it is. We're going to cover this window awning, and it doesn't do anything. It's pointless. It doesn't provide anything to the building other than this idea of decoration. And it it actually, it's a waste of money, right? And it doesn't do anything to make it better.
0: Well, you know, that's good architecture. That's how they see it.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny
2: about the material percentages. You know, we're still usually in any project that is requiring some kind of site plan approval or some kind of approval, depending on the PD and all the requirements, we still have to put percentages of materials that we use. But it doesn't do anything other than inform them, them and check the box, but it's still a requirement as a part of the submittal.
1: They can't, they can't regulate it, but it's still got to be there.
2: Yeah, but it's still carryover from the old verbiage of how their zoning was written. Sure, so, sure.
1: Yeah. My other favorite thing about that was that you always had to turn in full building elevations with a site plan. You're like, uh, what are we doing here, guys? Do you realize when that happens in the process of designing a building that we have final elevations done? That's like at 90% complete and you're wanting us to turn it in with 10% complete. And it's like, anytime you had to change anything or do anything, you had to resubmit and reapply and do all this stuff. I like mean, it used to just drive me nuts. I
0: mean, absolutely nuts. Yep. I looked up material takeoffs because I was like, I know I wrote an article. This is 2011. That's how long ago this one was. And it was titled planning and zoning departments make my face hurt. <laughs> and it had a picture of this material takeoff list. I can feel my pain. I mean, it doesn't take long. And I, I was like, you know, I try not to write angry. Like, I don't want to be in a bad mood because it comes across <laughs> this picture. And it's like, what I wrote was, do you know what this piece of paper represents other than a wasted afternoon my life? <laughs> it goes on to say, like, this is what's required. And it said, at least 80% of the exterior walls of the first floor of all structures shall be masonry construction, exclusive of doors and windows in the area above the plate line. Bob mm-hmm. Black goes on and on. And I said, we see this sort of thing more and more often these days, quasi-judicial city departments deciding what it takes to define a quality building, which apparently is 80% masonry. (laughs) You know, and I go, it hasn't changed. In fact, they've leaned into it. Now they don't just say masonry. They're like, well, it's got to be this percent of masonry, but this percentage of masonry has to be accent masonry, which means it has to protrude out a certain amount, or it's got to be in a contrasting material. or I go, if that's not designing a building, I don't know what is. And these people have no qualifications and they're all put in these positions where they go, look, I need to weigh in on this and evaluate this in the most defensible position possible. So they choose the most extreme interpretation of what it is that, <laughs> that they're being asked to enforce. It's ridiculous. Yeah. This particular one, it wasn't even just 80% of the elevation. It's 80% of the elevation by floor as defined by floor line to plate line. And I go, that's literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 80% by floor has to be masonry? What? That doesn't make any sense. Ugh. Reading this article makes my face hurt. Like I'm right back in the beginning when I wrote this. So
1: we'll say the thing about this that I think is bad, and it's a really generic thing, is that the problem with these types of enforcements is that the people that enforce them change over time. And they're also trendy. And it doesn't matter what it is. Within these buildings' lifetimes, at least hopefully, this whole idea about what constitutes good architecture from a municipality's viewpoint is definitely going to change. Who the people are that are enforcing them and what their priorities are is going to change. And from my perspective, it seems like city building departments have the most turnover of any place on the planet. There's like four or five people that stay there forever, and then the other 25 or 30 are rotating out every couple of years Because the job is terrible or they can't take it or they find something better or whatever. I don't really know. No judgments, but it seems like that's the case. But as these buildings remain and the people go away, it's really the community that's going to have to deal with these guidelines and what they produce, not the people who were enforcing those rules 10 years ago. And those trends and ideas behind what that is is going to continually change. We know that. And so making these rules and enforcing them and doing all that, in reality, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't produce the good architecture that they want. And even if it does, it's producing the architecture that this specific group wants at this specific time, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's good architecture either. It's what they want right now. And that leads to this idea of timelessness in architecture, which you just can't produce by rules and guidelines. I mean, it just doesn't
0: work. So, okay, we have to get into the end of the show, or this show's going to go on forever, because this is exactly the sort of thing that three architects could spend All night talking about. So where do you land? I want to say that if I start off, I'm going to say I hate it. I hate it. But at the same time, I go, "Mm." I recognize why they need it. Because if they don't have some kind of control in place, you're going to get the lowest common denominator, cheapest product possible. Because most people are making the decision based on what the greatest return on their investment is going to be. And it's different when you're doing a house for like person who's paying for it. It's their house. And you're not dealing with an HOA wildly different conversations than if you're doing, I did an eye clinic and it was 20,000 square foot building and 12 of which was for the doctors and the other remaining 8,000 square feet was for a retail center for them. And they owned it. They're owner operators. They're going to use their chunk and worry about the rest of it. And it was one of the hardest projects to go through the city that I ever had because they are trying to use legalese to say, oh, you need to step this in a foot and this vertically needs to be a foot taller than that. I'm like, why? What's the justification for it? It's not cheap. We're not trying to get out of spending a buck here. There was no ways for you to come in and mandate or legislate aesthetics. What's good or attractive to me is not the same thing that's good or attractive to the person who's reviewing my drawing. So how do they find out a way to say, well this is what you have to do? It's kind of what they've done. And caught up in the wash is the 10% of us who actually seem to care and go, well, I don't want to do that because what I'm going to do is I'm restricted by this, not because I'm looking to get out on the cheap side, but my architecture that I want in true doesn't respond within the box of parameters that you put in front of me. I guess I am a modernist.
2: So I think where I fall on this is it seems like this is a reality that we just deal with in our profession. So. Whether I like it or not, it's probably irrelevant.
0: Boo, it's a terrible answer. I know,
2: but I'll I'll pick a stance
0: on it. Okay.
2: For me, having those guidelines and almost, I won't say restrictions, but just things to play in actually stimulate my creativity more than a blank canvas. When I have those kind of parameters put in place, it forces me to be more creative to solve it, whether that be programmatically, aesthetically, or, or any of that stuff if I was going to preference where it's going, I think out of all the things that I participated in, in terms of things that would try and limit my ability to design, the form base seems to be the better solution if there's going to be control because it's not so descriptive that it still allows for some creativity. So I don't know if that's a clear answer or not. In the area that we deal with, it's going to be a
0: reality. So I think that, You gave a very reasonable answer to say, oh, when faced with a problem, I don't see it as a challenge. I see it as an opportunity. That's the kind of answer that you just gave us. And yes, I'd like to think that all of us would approach that the same way because it's tilting at windmills. This is what it is. You're going to have to deal with it, but it doesn't mean that I have to like the fact that people that don't know better are the ones that are deciding what is or isn't good. That's what I'm railing against.
2: Yeah. Now, it's also trying not to be so, or not allowing somebody to flex their design muscles when they want to, because clearly there's going to be a project, whether it's, you told know, we mentioned museums, or there's a parcel, or there's something that's going to be different that is going to force a situation that's going to break those norms. And you're probably going to have to go through consent and get people involved and all the contextual surroundings, all the neighbors. There's going to be moments in your career where you're dealing with that. So even though star architects deal with that to some capacity, all the, the lobbying and marketing that you maybe don't hear about before that project gets unveiled as a design is still a reality. It's still a
0: thing. That would be interesting. I'd like to hear like when Daniel Libeskind was doing the Denver museum of art, you know, and it's giant stabby spikes all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they're like, how do you want to put this in a box? Like there's no masonry on it at all. <laughs> like what is that process? How early they start? Or do they just go, Hey, Uh, we're the client city is, and we're going to free pass you because we're buying a piece of art as a building, not a building as a standalone piece. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Andrew, where do you fall?
1: (laughs) So on this idea of form based zoning, is that all I'm responding
0: to? No, it can be whatever you want to.
1: Okay. Form based zoning. I hate, I'm totally against it. All it's going to do is produce homogeneity. It's the same with these material guidelines. So I'm driving down the street. Oh, look, every building's brick. Every building's brick. Oh, and every 50 foot, there's a setback and a roof step up and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but I sided with Philip Johnson on this one, that it just creates terribleness and homogeneity. But if we're talking about this idea of contextualism, it's definitely different. But I view contextualism not as it having to look like exactly where it is, but having a response to the place that it's located, among other things. But if we're just talking about this idea of form-based codes, I just think they're garbage. (laughs) The funny thing is, is I used to always just resign myself to going to the design review boards for my projects that were in cities that had heavy guidelines because I knew I wasn't going to directly comply with those things. And then the city made new regulations about the only situations in which you could go to the design review board. You couldn't just opt to there automatically. And then they put in these new rules. That's
0: hatefully funny. (laughs)
1: I don't think it's because of me. I think mean, it was because there are a lot of people that did stuff. Yeah. But it was just that I was willing to spend the extra time to go through the process to get a building that looked the way I wanted it to look instead of just conforming to their ordinances and rules with their mandated forms and materials. But then they changed the rules and said you can only go for a couple of reasons. But again, I just hate them for all those reasons. I personally don't think that they make anything better. Yep. And as much as I hate to maybe say it, I think it'd be fine with crappy metal box next to a nice building next to crappy metal box next to a nice building, because that can produce a liveliness and a texture and a character. And I don't know if it's like Venturi-esque or whatever, but just that mix mash of things is something that makes character. And yeah, it may not always be the greatest character, but I'll give you that. Yeah,
0: but wait, before you go too far, my concern is you got a crappy box next to crappy box next to crappy box next to crappy box next to crappy box. And like, that's what you're going to get. That's the concern. You would hope that's not what, but happens, on the whole, though. yes, I like your answer way better than I like lanes. So,
2: <laughs> well, so for the record, I said if I had to choose a mechanism to enforce that, some form based zoning is the better of the evils. I agree with Andrew, I wouldn't want them at all, but that's just not usually the reality
0: that we're dealing with. Okay, so we all hate them. That's really okay. Good show. Mm. We could have just, yeah, could have said that at the beginning. <laughs> And we're done. And then we can say. but one minute in we go, all right, we're going to get to this week's fun question, which is where we're at right now. So we're going to do a, what's the rank for this episode? We're going to dust that one back off because it hadn't been a long time since we've done one. You know, and I was trying to come up with one today and all the people that sit around me and, and Lane sits next to me. So he knows how this process works because he's one of the guinea pigs that I try these questions out on. And so Lane, you know the drill. So basically you're gonna go first and Andrew and I are gonna make fun of your terrible answers. And then uh and then we're gonna tell you the correct answer. All right. You okay with that?
2: By the rules you mean I'd say the first one, number one first, right? And that is that
0: Oh no, no. No, 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 <laughs> no, then, no, no, no. And then I'm gonna change all the rules while you're answering your question. Yeah. So that so, you're not know, gonna have the wrong answers then. Yeah. Yes. That's dream world situation right there. Yeah. So the here it is. Here's the question: We are going to do a what's the rank on the worst three types of egg preparation? The three worst. Now, I know Andrew likes breakfast foods. Yeah, yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> and yeah. I like breakfast foods. Lane, do you like breakfast foods?
2: I do like breakfast foods.
0: Yeah. All right. So
2: I like breakfast foods when it's not breakfast foods.
0: Oh, exactly. I can eat breakfast for dinner, like, all the time. We know this. That's part of the reason I chose this one. You should have heard the other ones people were throwing out. Somebody suggested three worst types of men's shoes. I was like, what? That's that's a terrible one. And she goes, flip-flops. I'm like, well, we're not doing that question. (laughs) So so we're going to do worst three types of egg preparation. Now, I already told you guys this. It's not egg dish. So omelet is not a way to prepare eggs. Like eggs benedict is also not a way to prepare eggs.
1: Ugh. I'll give you eggs benedict, but omelet seems like a way to prepare eggs. It's
0: scrambled eggs with stuff in it that is cooked a particular way. If you get rid of the other ingredients, what is it? Scrambled eggs. Yeah, so you're raking scrambled eggs.
2: Well, just for the record, when you Google egg preparations, scrambled is
0: on Yeah, scrambled's fine. That's the eight different ways. Scrambled is a way to prepare eggs. Yes.
2: Scrambled, omelet, Mm. poached, sunny side up. Baked sous vide.
0: And I'm telling you right, right. now, omelet, mm-mm, that's a dish. Okay. Right?
2: All right. I'll concede. All
0: right. So number three, number three, worst way. What's it going to be?
2: Uh, I think it's poached for me. For number three. Really?
0: This is going to be yeah. harder than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because you're like, like yes, no, I'm like, I like, right. po- I like a poached egg. <laughs> like, it's so versatile.
1: I do like a good poached
2: well, egg. First of all, <laughs> I know Bob maybe knows me better than Andrew. I am like the Mikey of my family in terms of like, I usually don't eat anything. So I'm, I'm not picky at all. For those of you who don't know what I look like, you can probably look at our website and figure that out. I enjoy eating too. So, you know, there's that part of it. All right. So you mean to go to number two or are you guys going to go number three?
0: No, 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 no. Andrew's number three. Oh,
1: man. It's just bad. I would eat an egg almost any way you could fix it. It can
0: only be one, number one.
1: Okay, I'm going to go with an over hard egg. <laughs> if you know what that is.
0: I know exactly what that is. It's, it's like a
1: fried <laughs> egg. It's not over easy, but it's over hard because the yellow and the white is everything is hard. To me, it's like a well-done steak. It's like over hard egg. It's just terrible.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I'm just going to lean into that because my number three is an over hard egg. Huh. If you're going to ruin an egg, I mean, I almost made that one number one. It's close. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, really? I should have made it my number three and my number two because there's only yeah. one egg that I go gross. That one's gross. Just, ugh. but I'm going to go. I'm with Andrew on this okay. one. Over hard, number three. All, All right.
1: right. So you're up number two now, Lane. My number two, over hard. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. All yeah. right. I see how this is going to go. All
0: right, Andrew. What's your number two worst egg? <laughs>
1: uh, over medium?
0: Nah, okay, that's a terrible <laughs> answer. You know why that's a terrible answer? Because that's an accidental egg.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Because the best number one egg is the over-easy egg. That's the best. And you frequently get over-mediums because over easies are hard to make. So you got to make your peace. I'm like, you got to make your piece with over-medium.
1: Okay, actually, <laughs> actually, you don't know. I'm going to change my answer. Because in reality, I'm going to say that's a sunny-side-up egg. Because the whites are still runny on the sunny side up. It never gets flipped, so I'm cooking the egg whites. So, I don't mind a runny yolk, but I don't want any runny whites. No. Ugh. I'm going to go. It's actually sunny side up is the second
0: worst. Agreed. That is my number two as well. <laughs> That's so gross. Nice.
1: I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: I'm going to say my Favorite type of egg is sunny side up. Gross. And I know this is not my number one of the worst. You're the worst. So, just to show how different the spectrum is in terms of how
1: eggs are cooked, I can't do the runny white. Nobody should. Uh, I'm like over easy, but then just for two seconds, just flip it over just a smidge. All right.
2: So, down to my number one worst.
0: Number one. Number one worst. The most worst. The best worst. Soft boiled. No, that's. uh
1: I can't fault you for that. It's one.
0: really not that much different than a poached, really.
1: Mmm, mm, No. Yeah. You no. got
0: cooked white, mm. you got the whites cooked, and the yolk is runny. Yep. What's wrong with that? What's no. wrong with that?
1: No. Because the cooked white isn't always cooked all the way, even.
0: I mean, you're like, not making them right then. No. You're not making them right.
1: No. It's just a different consistency than a hard boiled egg, for sure. You have to admit that.
0: Look, I cannot stand runny whites. I hate them. Gross.
1: I mean, I'm not saying they're runny. I'm just saying they're not the same consistency as a hard-boiled egg.
0: Right. Yes, I agree with that.
1: That's the thing. It's different.
0: I like cooked white, raw, and I, I can do that every time with a soft-boiled egg. And you get, it gets kind of jammy. Oh. oh, come on. You're just not making them right.
1: Nope, nope. Because my number one is a soft-boiled egg also. You guys are wrong. <laughs> See?
2: It's a soft-boiled egg. I think it's because the expectation is that I'm about to get something that's hard-boiled and it looks like that is, and then you just get ruined. <laughs>
0: It's not that for me, but that would be terrible if you think you're biting into a hard boiled egg. Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) Oh, and you thought it was? Oh, yeah. I've never
0: ordered a soft boiled egg in my life. In my life, I've made a lot of them. That's why they're good because I know how to make them.
2: I agree. I've never ordered one. I've gotten one and didn't realize it. And that's why it's my (sighs) worst. It's like the worst surprise you could possibly get when you're looking at an egg. That it would be a bad surprise
0: Mm. for sure.
1: The only time I liked them, and even then it's a little bit iffy, is in ramen or noodles. But I would just rather have a fried egg on my ramen than a soft boiled one. I mean, it just doesn't do it for me.
0: Nope. I think y'all are both bad egg preparers then. Andrew, I thought for sure we were going to match three for three on this. I was like, this is it. You know what the worst is? Straight up raw. Mm -hmm. Like, just crack an egg and drink it. Pass. That's not prepared. How are you preparing that? It is prepared. Yeah. I cracked the egg. There's the preparation.
1: Oh, <laughs> man. No. Oh. That, that doesn't no. even count. <laughs> I think that's yes, BS answer. That's some BS no, crap BS. right here. I've
0: ever heard no, it, man. That's not BS. No, 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 that's Look, no, no. no. That's not the fact it. that you guys didn't logic yourself through the preparation is I take a package, I open it, and there's my food. My food is not the shell. It's inside of it. I had to prepare.
2: Well, then, all right? Then I'm going to follow that. The worst egg is if I crack it and just suck it out of the egg.
0: No, that's easy. That's <laughs> the, the worst. You did. It's still a raw egg. It's still a raw egg. That's what it is.
1: No, I'm gonna put a needle in it and suck out all the liquids, the fluids, <laughs> and then just shoot it in my mouth. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I juice box it. That's how I do <laughs> <eggs. laughs>
1: it. I get a stainless steel yeah, straw. I'm of this, gonna do it.
0: Those all tie. All of those tie for my all number those tie one. For them. Uh, raw. It needs to be. Uh, look. It doesn't count. does count. It does. It doesn't count. Nobody does that. Are you kidding? Rocky did it. That's facts. It's facts.
1: It's true. Wait, wait, wait. Have you ever seen anybody do that in person? Yes.
0: I've seen people crack it like not as a dare. No, that's not as a joke. Yeah. But this is what they do. At a gym, buddy. Doesn't work in my office now, but did before. Raw eggs. Gross. Uh uh. Mm. Mm -mm.
1: But you're not preparing it.
0: I'm saying you gotta, you gotta.
1: No, 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 no. You got to warm it up. Like, are you
0: you got to put it under your it armpit. <laughs> yeah. us, it's not prepared. You got to sit on it for a little while.
1: It's not a preparation. Yeah. If I just unwrap a steak out of the package, is it prepared? No, but if you took... You just said it. <laughs> All it is is the package. Open the package, and it's done. So if I took the steak out of a package, is it prepared? Have I prepared a steak? I think if you trim the fat off that
0: steak, you prepared it. There you go. Boom. Boom. Thanks, Lane. Thanks for having my back on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You're not even helping me, Lane, you jackass.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's my boy right there. (laughs) Man, I was trying to win the argument, and you just come and backslide I still agree that's not an answer. It is.
0: It's totally an answer. If I crack it open and put it into a beautiful bowl, and I crack some salt (laughs) and pepper on it. You just supported it, Lane's preparation. Come on. You're not going to convince me.
2: So the bowl is the preparation? You putting it in something is the preparation? Okay,
0: well, all right. Okay, because you guys are being fussy britches. (laughs) Salt and peppered raw egg. (laughs) There it is. I prepared it.
1: Uh, Mm. Okay. Raw eggs are disgusting.
0: I led into this. Look, I'm consistent. I went from degrees of undercooked whites the whole way. Every step of the way. No. was gross.
1: No, because over hard hard is overcooked everything. No, that's
0: like you've completely got rid of the runny.
1: You know, overheart is just a flat boiled egg. That's all it is. I know.
0: It's tragic. Yeah. Okay. Look, I think we've reached a point where we all agree that I gave the best answers to today's question. I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today, Lane. Appreciate you joining us this evening for the call. And thank you, the listener, for listening to episode 127, Context and Design.
2: Well, thank you guys for having me it was fun
0: and thank you for bailing me out on the raw egg man <laughs> you're my friend up to that point special thanks to our media partners building design and construction for their ongoing support of the life of an architect podcast
1: want to get every new episode automatically downloaded We're available on all major podcast players, so hit that subscribe button so you will get notified every two weeks when we publish a dramatic new episode.
0: And while you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star eggs all day, every day rating.
1: To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this monumental episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in.
1: Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.